Okay, I am going to say something that's maybe the least surprising thing I've ever said before. This week, I was on social media and saw something shocking. What? Uh, it might not be what you're expecting, though. So um, it wasn't like some crazy uncle who's sharing some crazy thing that he believes. Hello, plane. That was fun. Um, it wasn't something about uh, what was going on in the uh, continuing unfolding war in Ukraine. It's not something, some breaking news from the January 6th committee. Um, what I saw that was shocking was uh, pictures that some friends were sharing from a concert. Now this is June 2022. This isn't like June 2020 where there are no concerts because you're not you're not supposed to be around other people. People go to concerts. Uh, this is one of those industries that it actually has built up to almost post-pandemic levels now, two years later. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily that they were going to a concert, but it was that, uh, the shocking thing was that they were going to this concert and that actually that this concert was even happening. Um, and the concert in question was uh, Chris Tomlin and Hillsong United. How many of you are familiar with Hillsong United? Were any of you at that concert? Okay, that will make this less awkward. Uh, so Hillsong, many of you are familiar with Hillsong United. If you're not familiar with Hillsong United, Hillsong United is a contemporary Christian music group. Um, and, and if you're not familiar with them just by their name, you would be familiar with much of their music, if not their, their specific music, then the vibe. Um, Hillsong United is responsible for some of the, the most played, most famous um, contemporary Christian music for the last 10 years, and they have influenced basically everybody else in, in the industry. Um, so they're, they're quite popular. Uh, I put my phone. Is my phone over there? I have something I gotta read. Okay, I should have muted that. Okay, I, I wanted to read this from their website because this is how Hillsong United thinks of themselves. And their website reads, committed, uh, committed to creating a musical expression that is almost uncomfortable in its uniqueness. Our mission is to write songs that awaken churches and individuals to the fact that we are redeemed and called into the story of God. Almost uncomfortable in their uniqueness. Um... Something else makes me uncomfortable about Hillsong United. How many of you are familiar with Hillsong the Church? So Hillsong United is uh, like the musical wing of Hillsong Church. And Hillsong Church you might be more familiar with, uh, or more of you might be familiar with Hillsong Church because it's one of the biggest churches in the world and has just come crashing down in the last year as all of this uh, well-reported uh, well-documented abuse and cover-up um, ha has come to light. This spring, over the course of two weeks, the, the lead pastor was, was forced to resign, and half of their churches in the United States, in two weeks, either closed or changed their names be because it was like, just like too much for them to be able to handle. And yet, the, the shocking thing was that Hillsong United is still producing music. And they are still 
touring the country and they're still having concerts and thousands of people, including people that I know pretty well, are showing up at those concerts and really excited about it and probably going home to their churches and those churches are continuing to play their music within worship. So the shocking thing to me is to think about how can, how can you be aware of the abuse that happens by, if not the artists themselves, by like the, the supporters of those artists and still embrace that art, still embrace that music? That question is what we're taking on today. Uh, we are smack dab in the middle of our series, which we've been calling Cancel Culture. Uh, like the name itself is supposed to be a, a little shocking, and yet we wanted to define what we mean by cancel culture too. So two weeks ago when we started this series, I said that cancel culture is the idea of wanting a, a public accountability for those uh, people or institutions who have um, gotten away from um, consequences by normal means. And the way that we're trying to think about it is with three questions. When there's something that's problematic, uh, especially for us as followers of Jesus, what do we decide to keep? What do we decide to get rid of or cancel? And what do we decide, you know what, this isn't great, but maybe it can be renewed in some way. There's something that can be redeemed in it. So two weeks ago when we started, we talked about the church. Not great history, right? We don't need to go into any more of that. Uh, then last week we talked about uh, problematic ideas or problematic theology and specifically about the theology of exclusion around LGBTQ plus people. Um, now today we're talking about that question of art and artists. What do we do with problematic art and artists that were maybe once really important or meaningful to us? Now we're like, eh, not so sure. And before I go any further, I want to acknowledge once again, I don't have all the answers to this. Um, and, and I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers for you too. One of the things that I wanted to accomplish with this series to provide some like ideas or frameworks for us to try to go about answering these questions. Um, and, and sometimes it might be helpful, sometimes it might not work. Uh, so two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of maybe to uncancel something or to avoid cancellation, we need to acknowledge the harm that has been done and then take tangible steps to do better. That might work in some situations. It might not work in other situations. Then last week, we talked about this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It says uh, to, to understand a, a life well-lived, we need to keep in consideration and tension four different things, scripture and tradition and experience and reason, and constantly be holding those things in balance and intention. And maybe then we can figure out what, what to keep, what to get rid of, and uh, what needs to be renewed. Well, uh, today as we talk about art, um, I want to acknowledge that this is maybe a little bit even trickier than the other ones because art, whether it's movies or music or books or uh, TV, uh, these are things that we really enjoy, that like uh, we, we almost like embrace as ours. They can be consumed and they can even like provide nourishment. And so I want to go back 2,000 years to the, the earliest Christians, the earliest followers of Jesus, the early church, who were asking some of the same questions about what do we keep, what do we get rid of, and what can be renewed, and specifically a question about what to consume. One of the big questions 2,000 years ago for the earliest Christians was, what do we do with food that was sacrificed to idols? 
How many of you have asked that question before? <laughs> Nobody, right? None of you have asked that question. Well, 2,000 years ago, this was a really important question that lots and lots of people were asking because in the Roman Empire, if you were not a Jewish person, you probably lived in a town where there were other temples to other gods, there were other rituals, uh, ritual sacrifices that were done, and it involved food often. And uh, if, if you participated, which you probably did participate in some capacity, the, the food that was sacrificed to idols was often served to you after you participated in, in, that, uh, in that sacrifice. So you got to eat it. Woohoo! Even if you didn't participate in it, much of the food that would have been in the market that you would have gone and bought had at some point been sacrificed by somebody else to those idols. So whether you did it knowingly or not, you were somehow participating in this uh, ritual sacrifice to other gods. Now you are a follower of Jesus living in that setting, and this is really important to you because it raises all sorts of questions. Uh, one, it raises the question of, all right, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in one God. Does it really matter if this is sacrificed to another God who I know isn't real anyways? Uh, but then there's this question of there was uh, often in these temples um, people that were taken advantage of, women and children and, and slaves. Do I really want to participate in something, uh, consume something that I know has been uh, built on their backs? This was a really big, important question for them. And so they, the earliest Christians in the city of Corinth, which is in the Roman Empire, write to one of the earliest followers of Jesus named Paul and say, can you answer this question for us? What do we do with food that was sacrificed to idols? Do we eat it or do we not eat it? They're looking for a very clear, concise question or answer to this question. And if you know anything about the uh, Apostle Paul, Paul is, he comes on a little bit strong. Uh, he has very strong beliefs and isn't afraid of, of saying what he believes that this is exactly what you should do. So this is what they're expecting from him. Do we consume this thing that has a problematic past or do we not consume this thing? And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. We regard to food sacrifice to idol, with regard to food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone thinks they know something, they do not yet know to the degree that they need to know. But if someone loves God, they are known by God. With regard to eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol in this world is nothing, and that there is no uh, God but one. If, after all, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, our parent, from whom all things and for whom we live, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are, are all things and through whom we live. But this knowledge is not shared by all, and some, by being consumed to idols in former times, eat this food as an idol sacrifice, and their conscience, because it is weak, is defiled. Now food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But be careful that the liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. For if someone weak sees you who possess knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not their conscience be strengthened to eat food offered to idols? 
So by your knowledge, the weak sibling for whom Christ died is destroyed. If you sin against your siblings in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. For this reason, if food causes my sibling to sin, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause one of them to sin. Tracking? Here's, here's it really concise. Ready? As for food, sacrifice to idols. I don't know. Uh, we have this freedom as followers of Jesus to choose. It, it really doesn't matter. But here are some things that you might consider. If your conscience is okay with it, go for it. If your conscience is not okay with it, don't go for it. So consider your conscience. What does your conscience tell you to do? Pay attention to your conscience. What is that, Pinocchio? Always let your conscience be your guide? Biblical. Uh, the, the, second, the second thing, he says, consider how this might impact other people. By you consuming it, is it going to have a negative impact on, on other people? If it does, may, maybe you consider not consuming it. Maybe. Uh, and then there's this third thing, which, which simply says, you know, you have all of this freedom, you have all of this knowledge, but what you really should pay attention to is love. And if, if consuming this thing gets in the way of you being able to love God and love others well, then maybe don't do it. So, so those are the three things that he lays out. And I want to actually add a fourth thing, which actually comes from art criticism. Any art critics out there? Okay. I read up. All, I read all of the things this week about art criticism. Um, there, there's this thing in art criticism, which is about limited amount of time, a limited amount of bandwidth, a limited amount of attention, and something might be fine. Some sort of artwork, movie, music, book, whatever, might be fine, but it might distract us from something that's even better. So the example, the food example that I want to give is rhubarb. Strawberry rhubarb jam, strawberry rhubarb pie with like the crumbles on top. Unbelievable, right? How much sugar has to go into rhubarb pie? A lot of sugar, right? So you have to add so much stuff in order to mask the actual taste of rhubarb to the point where it's like, are there other things that I could actually be eating where I don't have to like put so much sugar in it in order to mask the taste of the main ingredient? So maybe when it comes to consuming things, you could consume something and it would be fine, but maybe there's something else that consuming the, the problematic fine thing is actually distracting you from enjoying. So again, those four things that may or may not be helpful to you when you're thinking through, do I consume some sort of art that may or may not be problematic? What does your conscience say? How does it impact other people? Does it promote love? And is this uh, distracting me from something that's even better? So what we're going to do now is actually use an example. And I'm going to have Katie come up here because the idea for this whole series came from choosing music for worship. So Katie's going to join me up here and we're going to talk about the process for choosing music for worship, what we choose, what we don't choose, why all of that okay hi hello thank you for having me today <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs> want to introduce yourself hello no. i'm katie 
All right, so, so first I ask Katie to describe a little bit, because every once in a while she'll get questions about like, hey, can you do this song? Why don't you do this song? So why don't you start with the process, talking about the process by which you choose what gets sung by you, what gets sung by us. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, thank you, church, for trusting me with this job. I don't take it lightly, um, especially song choices. Like, Jeremy gets to come up here and tell you what he believes, and you can be like, take it or leave it. When we do music and prayers, I'm putting words on your lips. That's a big responsibility. <laughs> and there's not going to be any perfect song that enters this experience. But I am as thoughtful as I can be and as careful as I can be about this and making sure that our music represents who we are as a congregation and represents our general collective beliefs. There are sort of like three major umbrellas that I take into con of category, like things I take into consideration when choosing music. One is like the musicality aspect. Does the music of this song fit who we are as a congregation? You know, there's people in our congregation who grew up on hymns and liturgy. There's people in our congregation who only know modern worship music and everything in between. So musically, we're bridging some gaps and doing sort of a blended style of worship, mostly like modern style of worship, but blended to where these are, this is culturally, stylistically music that represents who we are. Um, that's more surface level. Getting deeper, another thing, th probably the biggest thing I take into consideration is theological content, which is real complicated. We're going to get into that in a little bit. <laughs> and then another thing I take into consideration is the source of the music. Like Jeremy was talking about, who or what does this music come from? Is it a trusted source? And if not, should we maybe not use that music? And that's uh, a little more complicated and something that we talk about, but don't know that we have all the answers to. Um, because there's different kinds of sources, right? There's like Hillsong, which is an institution. There's uh, individuals as well. Um, like if, if an individual who wrote a song is a problematic individual. Um, and so those are things I take into consideration. There's a few different examples of that that I was thinking of. Um, so Hillsong is the institution. Maybe the songs themselves and the actual songwriters who wrote those songs are not responsible for the behavior of the institution. However, from a music copywriting standpoint, the copyrights that we pay for go to not just the songwriters, but the institution of Hillsong. And that's not an institution we want to support. So that's been a difficult thing for us to think through is like, I mean, it's easy to say like, oh, we just don't use any more Hillsong songs. Well, there's a few Hillsong songs that are, have been around for decades and people love them and they're still very meaningful. But even though we're paying pennies per song for copywriting, do we want those pennies to go feed an abusive mini empire? Maybe not. Maybe there's times when that particular song is perfect for that particular moment, and maybe we use it. Maybe we don't. No, no hard answers there. Um, another, you know, now you think about the individual songwriter. Um, 
I learned this week about a Catholic songwriter who, um, I don't even remember his name, and we don't need to know. It's not important because he's kind of canceled <laughs> because he's notoriously an abuser of women. Are we going to use his music? No. <laughs> I am not going to use his music because um, we operate under a do-no-harm policy, and again, if our use of his music is siding with the oppressor, then I think we're making a mistake. And I don't want him to get any of our money, to be honest with you. <laughs> so that's one of those situations where, for me, it's an easy answer. Um, another thing I realized this week, we're going to talk about this song more near the end. The writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, guess what I learned on Wikipedia? The dude was a slave trader, owned slave ships, transported enslaved people across the world. The writer of our beloved song, Amazing Grace, was a well-known slave trader. Now, there's some history there. There's a timeline. He repented, became a pastor, wrote Amazing Grace, and later became an abolitionist. <laughs> but we can't ignore the fact that he's got some serious history doing some serious, serious harm. And that's something to consider when we use these songs. So those are a lot of things I consider when it comes to um, choosing songs based on the source. And I, I just came up with this sort of phrase. It's not a thing we have a hard answer for most of the time, but it's a process of consideration. Any Good Place fan? the show The Good Place? Oh, come on. Netflix, go check it out, The Good Place. Um, the Good Place talks about like moral complexity and how we live in a really tricky world where going and buying tomatoes and trying to figure out where those tomatoes came from can be like ethical debacle mm -hmm. if we allow it to. So like just hearing you describe how our pennies are spent and do we want to send our pennies here? And all of that comes into play as we're figuring out what music we choose for a Sunday, whether you are aware of it or not. Um, I, one more thing I was going to say about that, something I'm learning um, as I am learning to be an ally to different people groups is that ultimately um, leaning into what the oppressed people group is saying. So in the case of the Catholic songwriter guy, women are saying, don't use his music. He's an abuser of women. They are the oppressed ones in that situation, and so we listen and we follow suit. In the case of Amazing Grace, I see a large part of the black and African-American community still using and embracing this song, um, which tells me that they understand the history of it, and still it is one that speaks to their spiritual experience, and it's still a beloved song in that community. If the majority of the black community was ditching that song, then I think it would be very important for us to consider ditching it as well. Not ditching it, that's so weird. <laughs> but it would be important for us to say, hmm, maybe that song is problematic. Maybe we need to be listening to what these people are saying about their experience with that song and following suit. So that's another thing I've been considering lately. Okay. So Amazing Grace is the example that we're using yeah. today. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a little bit. I did want to touch on as well, because um, we'll, we're actually going to go through Amazing Grace. 
and we're going to workshop it a little bit, some of the lyrics. Some of the lyrics are great. Some of them give me pause and make me think, hmm, is that what we actually believe, or are we just singing that because that's what we've always sung? So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I did want to share, too, that like the theological content of songs is really, really important for us. Um, again, music is incredibly influential, and even like I've heard of psychological studies that show like when you sing something, it actually like becomes more concrete in your brain than when you just think it or when you just say it. So it's very important that we're singing lyrics that are still challenge us, but are mostly agreeable and helping us work towards something good in our own lives and in the community. So there it is again. <laughs> So there's a lot that I consider. There's a lot that when I'm looking at a new song or if someone says, hey, are we ever going to do this hymn? I first go back. That's my first step is reading the lyrics. Before I even listen to the song, I read the lyrics and see if this is something that we want to include as a part of our worship. And um, there's a lot of stuff that I stay away from. I don't think it's as productive for us to talk about what we don't want in our songs but what we do want in our songs. And I realized this morning that I wasn't doing this consciously, but the way, the type of content I look for in songs all falls under our four values as a church that we've been talking about. So deepening our curiosity and sense of awe, expanding our circle of inclusion, nurturing healing, wholeness and beauty, What's the other one? Nurturing healing, what healing <laughs> and beauty. Expanding our circle of inclusion. Uh, cultivating the common cultivating good. Cultivating the common good. Okay, yeah. So briefly about each one of those. For nurturing healness, healing, wholeness, and beauty, I'm asking, do our songs represent an ongoing individual and interpersonal process of transformation and growth? We sing both, not just about the good, fluffy, happy parts of spirituality, <laughs> the pretty stuff, but we're also singing about the hard stuff, and we're willing to say some hard things and be challenged. Next, expanding our circle of inclusion. The songs call us to radical inclusion, not just in our actions, but in how we talk about God. For example, pronouns. Most Christian music refers to God as he or him. I think we know that God is not a dude. <laughs> While God may embody masculine traits, God is not only masculine. God is referred to in scripture as both masculine and feminine in their original languages. Why not include that as a part of our worship? As partly because that expands our views of God into thinking something God is maybe bigger than what we had been taught, but also it has real life uh, repercussions. I mean, there are trans people in our congregation. Does God not represent them too? So God in our music is not always referred to he, him. Sometimes we change uh, God to gender neutral pronouns or other words that are gender neutral. 
Um, we haven't done this as much, but uh, many churches also use she, her pronouns when talking about God. Um, admittedly, that's not something I personally resonate with, but I, like I agree with it. God is all genders, but it's not one that I've been as comfortable saying, so we haven't said it as much. That's an area that I'm working on stretching in myself. But you notice a couple of the songs we did today on the um, Your Love is Strong, we didn't say Heavenly Father, we said Heavenly Parent. And when we did the newer version of the doxology, it was all gender neutral references to God because God is bigger than just one gender. That's a part of our inclusive nature. Deepening our curiosity and sense of awe. So we fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity. There's many different realms and a spectrum of theological differences in Christianity and we sort of fall under the progressive side of things. When I think of progressive Christianity, I think of the word expansive. It's not settled, it's not stagnant, it's it's growing. And so our songs aren't necessarily like decisive in our theology. This is what we have to believe. That's not what we're about. We're expanding our idea of who God is and what God is doing in the world and what that means for us. Which leads me to the last one, cultivating the common good. The songs remind us that we exist in community. A lot of Christianity talks about a personal relationship with God, and that's beautiful. That's not the whole picture. We're not an island. We exist in community, and our words and actions have an impact that goes beyond our own house. So we sing songs that both inspire us and mobilize us to do good work in the world. So those are the kinds of things I'm looking for theologically. And if a song just has a very different sort of content lyrically, it's probably not a song I'm going to choose if it doesn't align with who we are. Um, There are songs, like you've seen today already, songs that the core message of the song is still beautiful and but maybe some of the lyrics could be shifted a little bit to align more with what we actually believe. And uh, so we're going to try that with Amazing Grace. Is anybody nervous about this? Is anybody like, don't touch Amazing Grace? It's okay if you are. Okay, nobody nobody hates me yet. We'll see. (laughs) Um, That's right, you can get set. We're not ready for you yet, but... I'm going to have you all participate with me in this. We're going to look at primarily the first verse. Hello. I can't help you with that right now. (laughs) Um, Primarily the first verse. Oh, before we do this. Nope, nope, nope. We're going to do this first. Sorry. Checking my notes. Most of Amazing Grace... I don't have a problem with. Some of it feels dishonest to me. Maybe that's not the right word. It just feels like this is someone else's story. The man that wrote it, John Newton, like we said, he was a slave trader. He was also a slave at one point. He also just, from what I read on Wikipedia, um, not the most respectful person in the world. The way he talked to people, he was notorious for having a sharp mouth. And just being generally rude and hurtful in the way that he spoke to people. Um, He wrote this song 
with complete honesty in his own experience. Something I'm realizing is that a lot of people are not that person. And so we may not quite connect with his, his story. We can connect with parts of it, but not all of it. So, all right, let's take this piece by piece. I'm going to have you guys sing with me. Don't worry about getting your lyrics up yet, because I think that you know the original lyrics to this verse. Most people do. It's okay if you don't. But let's sing together. Um, let's just sing the first verse, and I'll stop you when I hear something that I want to work on with you. Okay, let's sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Pause. Wretch? Do you all feel like you're wretched? Maybe some days or some moments. But like you as an entire human being, do you feel like you just live a wretched life? Like you're just despicable. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve grace. Does anybody actually believe that about themselves? I don't believe that about you. God made us. That's our story is that God made us and called us good. And the continued story we see is that even when we mess up, God continues to want us and continues to transform us and make us good. Do you want to see? An unhappy state. Okay. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. So a different understanding of wretched is being, like you said, in a deeply unhappy state, which I imagine the writer John Newton was. He knew he had messed up a lot in life. He also found himself as a slave. I, he felt wretched, <laughs> for sure. And I think we all have moments like that. I could be wrong, but I don't know many people that live in that space 100% of the time. So my suggestion is, what if we change that word to something different that more of us can resonate with? One of the suggestions I offered and that you can see in your lyrics is a soul like me. Because it shows us as more of a whole being. And wretchedness can be a part of our soul spiritual experience. But there's more to us than that, too. There's a lot of beauty, too, right? So that's just one. And Obviously, this isn't like a true workshop. If it were, we would be talking about this for a long time. I've already kind of made some lyrical suggestions. <laughs> you can agree with them or not, but we'll, we'll try those together today. Okay, so that was my first thing in Amazing Grace that just hasn't sat well with me for a long time because I don't feel like it resonates with everybody. Let's try singing it again. We'll get a little farther this time. The original lyrics. Let's see what's next. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Okay, pause. If you are a person 
this is if you feel comfortable sharing, if you're a person who had that sort of big turnaround repentance moment where you like lived a not great life before and then God changed you and you got you felt like you sort of got saved. If that's you, that's valid. Can you raise your hand? A couple people. Okay. I fall into a category, and I know many other people that do, of people who have sort of been faithful our whole lives. Neither is better than the other. So that's not what I'm saying. But I have personally never had sort of a falling away. I've never had a big repentant moment. I've never had a moment that felt like a salvation experience. I have always felt God with me closely. And I know a lot of people out there who have that experience in their faith too. So singing lyrics that are past tense, talking about one particular moment in time as a salvation experience, that's not all of our story. That was certainly John Newton's and some other people here, but that's not everyone's story. I personally experience salvation as more of an ongoing process of reform and transformation and growth and healing. And so that's one of those things, too, with Amazing Grace. I just thought, man, this is an incredible story in its original context. But if we're thinking of worship as a communal experience, it's important to remember that that's not everybody's story. And so what if we could change those lyrics a little bit to keep the integrity and the message of the song and also change it to be more inclusive to everyone? So you can see, i got to pull it up myself the lyrics we've changed just a little bit to be more um, of a this is an ongoing salvation experience amazing grace how sweet the sound that saves a soul like me when I feel lost with you I'm found when I'm blind you help me see Again, these are, this is my proposal, not anything that's written in stone, not anything we have to keep, but I just wanted to share an example of how something could be rewritten to be more inclusive and expansive and maybe something that more of us resonate with, but still keeps the integrity of the song. Another part of the song, most of the song I actually kept. If you're like, geez, what is this lady doing to our beloved song? <laughs> Most of it I kept. The only other change I made was um, making gender-neutral uh, pronouns for God in the third verse. Instead of his word, my hope secures, God's word, my hope secures, they will my shield and portion be. So hopefully that isn't ruining the experience of the song for anybody. I hope more than anything that me showing the example of this and how I think about songs helps all of us approach worship with a loving, critical lens. And again, it's a process of discernment. And songs that meant something to us 10 years ago might be not singable for us now. And that's okay. We change. We grow. So we'll sing this song together in a moment with the new lyrics, or like I said, you can sing the lyrics that most resonate with your spirit, and we'll clash lyrically, and that'll be great. I love it. But uh, as a final thought, um, as we navigate worshiping together, you may feel uncomfortable at times. 
a question to ask yourself is, is that uh, because we're messing with something that feels sacred? Like the Lord's Prayer or Amazing Grace? Or is it because you're presented with a theological idea that makes you uncomfortable? And if so, either way, I encourage you to lean into that discomfort and open up conversation about it because my word is not final. I don't speak for all of us. I do my best to choose for all of us, but that doesn't mean like I always know what's best. So let's keep in conversation about it. And know that I don't always agree with every song that we do. I don't always agree with every lyric, and I hold myself in that tension as well because I've heard some feedback from people where they'll say, oh, I love that song. That song's my favorite song. It means so much to me. And in my head, I'm going, man, I really don't like that song anymore. <laughs> but I do it because I know it's not about me. <clears throat> Remember that worship is not an individual practice. It's communal not just communal for this body of people sitting right here and the people connected to us online as well, but communal meaning it crosses time and space as well. We're growing and stretching together. We're not all going to like or resonate with the same ideas, and that's okay. And you don't have to sing the lyrics we're singing. If you want to sing the original lyrics to Amazing Grace, do that. Or if you want to use she pronouns for God, do that. <laughs> Worship can be effectively personal and communal at the same time. Okay. You guys ready to try singing this together? I say you guys. You all. How about that? Speaking of inclusivity. Are you all ready to stand? Okay, one more thing. You said something really beautiful in the car earlier, and I don't want to go by that. Speaking of amazing grace, one of the best things about it is if we do things wrong or say stuff wrong, and in five years we look back and we're like, oh, that was so silly. I can't believe we used that song, or I can't believe we attached ourselves to this theology or whatever. God still works through that. Don't we all have times in our past where we believed something very different, and God still used that for good? So... Let that release you of any duty to be right <laughs> and just be faithful and lean into grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves us all.
Shine. 